What does the cryptic cipher zigzag mean? And how can it be used to set a trap for Fu Manchu's minions? Sax Romer, today on the Classic Tales Podcast. Welcome to the Classic Tales Podcast. Thank you for listening. The Classic Tales Podcast is listener-supported. We're currently struggling a little bit to keep up on our bills to keep the podcast going strong. If you can step up with $5 a month, that will really help us out. We'll give you a thank you code in return to help your audiobook library of the classics continue to grow. Everybody wins, and you get to throw in your voice of support in keeping the Classic Tales podcast going strong. Thank you so much for your help. Please step up and donate to the podcast by going to classictalesaudiobooks.com. Again, the website is classictalesaudiobooks, all one word, dot com. I recently ordered a long-sleeve t-shirt of the island of Dr. Moreau and a short-sleeve tee of Treasure Island. I'm very happy with them. Now my boys want one too. Links to our merchandise store and my invention of the hybrid audiobook are available in the description for this episode. The meditations of Marcus Aurelius continue in the special features of this week's episode in the Classic Tales app. In the app, tap on the box with a bow on the left side when you play the episode. That's the special features area. It's like a present. Today we continue our series of The Hand of Fu Manchu by Sax Romer. As with last week and during the run of this series, as you run into objectionable stuff, feel free to talk about it with your friends. Point out the problems with your kids. Racism thrives in darkness. Let's shine a light on it and clean this out of our culture through honest and informed discussion. Now for our personal moment of the week. Some have asked about the names of our kids and where they came from. Well, our oldest son, Basil, is named after Basil Rathbone, who played Sherlock Holmes in the 30s and 40s. Because yes, I've loved the classics for a long, long time, but I'm not naming my kid Sherlock. So we named him after Basil Rathbone, who was my favorite Sherlock at the time. Seven, our middle child, is named after his grandpa Seven, and his name really is Seven. Grandpa Seven is a production designer and has been one for many years in television and film. You may have actually seen his name on credits for movies. He worked on Dumb and Dumber and Con Air, some of the other ones that came through Utah. Uh, For a while there, if there was anything big that was coming through Utah, he was working on it. So our son Seven is named after his grandpa Seven. And Goldberry, our youngest, is named after a character in The Lord of the Rings. She's Tom Bombadil's wife. She's a river princess. Uh, She didn't make it in the movies, but (laughs) she's in the books. So that's where our kids' names come from. Yeah, none of their names are ever found on any keychains in any tourist traps. But to us, it's worth it. And now, The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 5 of 7, by Sax Romer. Chapter 19, Zagazig. 
Fully two weeks elapsed, ere Nayland Smith's arduous labours at last met with a slight reward. For a moment, the curtain of mystery surrounding the sea fan was lifted, and we had a glimpse of that organization's elaborate mechanism. I cannot better commence my relation to the episodes associated with the Zagazig's cryptogram than from the moment when I found myself bending over a prostrate form extended upon the table in the inspector's room at the River Police Depot. It was that of a man who looked like a Lasker, who wore an ill-fitting slop-shop suit of blue, soaked and stained and clinging hideously to his body. His dank black hair was streaked upon his low brow, and his face, although it was notable for a sort of evil leer, had assumed in death another and more dreadful expression. Asphyxiation had accounted for his end beyond doubt, but there were marks about his throat of clutching fingers, his tongue protruded, and the look in the dead eyes was appalling. "'He was amongst the piles upholding the old wharf at the back of the joy shop,' said Smith tersely, turning to the police officer in charge. "'Exactly,' was the reply. "'The incoming tide had jammed him right up under a crossbeam.' "'What time was that?' "'Well, at high tide last night. Hewson, returning with the ten o'clock boat, noticed the moonlight glittering upon the knife.' The knife, to which the inspector referred, possessed a long, curved blade, of a kind with which I had become terribly familiar in the past. The dead man still clutched the hilt of the weapon in his right hand, and it now lay with the blade resting crosswise upon his breast. I stared, in a fascinated way, at this mysterious and tragic flotsam of old Thames. Glancing up, I found Nayland Smith's grey eyes watching me. "'You see the mark, Petrie? he snapped. "'I nodded. "'The dead man upon the table was a Burmese dacoit. "'What do you make of it?' I said slowly. "'At the moment,' replied Smith, "'I scarcely know what to make of it. "'You are agreed with the divisional surgeon "'that the man, unquestionably a dacoit, "'died not from drowning but from strangulation. "'From evidence we have heard,' It would appear that the encounter which resulted in the body being hurled in the river actually took place upon the wharf-end beneath which he was found. And we know that a place formerly used by the Seafan group, in other words by Dr. Fu Manchu, adjoins the wharf. I am tempted to believe that this— he nodded towards the ghastly and sinister object upon the table— was a servant of the Chinese doctor, in other words— we see before us one whom Fu Manchu has rebuked for some shortcoming. I shuddered coldly. Familiar as I should have been with the methods of the dread Chinaman, with his callous disregard of human suffering, of human life, of human law, I could not reconcile my ideas, the ideas of a modern, ordinary, middle-class practitioner, with these Far Eastern devilries which were taking place in London. Even now I sometimes found myself doubting the reality of the whole thing, found myself reviewing the history of the Eastern Doctor and of the horrible group of murderers surrounding him with an incredulity almost unbelievable in one who had been actually in contact not only with the servants of the Chinaman, but with the sinister Fu Manchu himself. Then, to restore me to grips with reality, would come the thought of Karamena, of the beautiful girl whose love had brought me seemingly endless sorrow, and whose love for me had brought her once again into the power of that mysterious, implacable being.
this thought was enough. With its coming, fantasy vanished, and I knew that the dead decoit, his great curved knife yet clutched in his hand, the yellow menace hanging over London, over England, over the civilized world, the absence, the heartbreaking absence of Caramena, all were real, all were true, all were part of my life. Nayland Smith was standing staring vaguely before him and tugging at the lobe of his left ear. Come along, he snapped suddenly. We have no more to learn here. The clue to the mystery must be sought elsewhere. There was that in his manner whereby I knew that his thoughts were far away, as we filed out from the river police depot to the cab which awaited us. Pulling from his overcoat pocket a copy of the daily paper, Have you seen this, Weymouth? he demanded. With a long, nervous index finger, he indicated a paragraph on the front page, which appeared under the heading of Personal. Weymouth bent frowningly over the paper, holding it close to his eyes. For this was a gloomy morning, and the light in the cab was poor. Such things don't enter into my sphere, Mr. Smith, he replied. But no doubt the proper department at the yard have seen it. I know they have seen it, snapped Smith. But they have also been unable to read it. Weymouth looked up in surprise. Indeed, he said. You are interested in this, then? Very. Have you any suggestion to offer respecting it? Moving from my seat, I also bent over the paper, and read in growing astonishment the following. The cryptic word, Zagazig, and the letters composing it repeated over and over, with varying punctuation between the letters. This is utterly incomprehensible. It can be nothing but some foolish practical joke. It consists merely of the word Zagazig repeated six or seven times, which can have no possible significance. Can't it? snapped Smith. Well, I said, what has Zagazig to do with Fu Manchu, or to do with us? Zagazig, my dear Petri, is a very unsavory Arab town in Lower Egypt, as you know. He returned the paper to the pocket of his overcoat, and noting my bewildered glance, burst into one of his sudden laughs. You think I'm talking nonsense, he said. But as a matter of fact, that message in the paper has been puzzling me since it appeared, yesterday morning, and at last I think I see the light. He pulled out his pipe and began rapidly to load it. I have been growing careless of late, Petri, he continued, and no hint of merriment remained in his voice. His gaunt face was drawn grimly, and his eyes glittered like steel. In the future, I must avoid going out alone at night as much as possible. Inspector Weymouth was staring at Smith in a puzzled way, and certainly I was every whit as mystified as he. I am disposed to believe, said my friend in his rapid, incisive way, that the decoit met his end at the hands of a tall man, possibly dark and almost certainly clean-shaven. If this missing personage wears on chilly nights a long tweed travelling coat, and affects soft grey hats of the Stetson pattern, I shall not be surprised. Weymouth stared at me in frank bewilderment. By the way, Inspector, added Smith, a sudden gleam of inspiration entering his keen eyes, did I not see that the SS Andaman arrived recently? 
"'The Oriental Navigation Company's boat?' inquired Weymouth in a hopeless tone. "'Yes, she docked yesterday evening. "'If Jack Forsyth is still chief officer, I shall look him up,' declared Smith. "'You recall his brother, Petrie?' "'Naturally.' "'Since he was done to death in my presence,' I replied. "'The words awoke memories of one of Dr. Fu Manchu's most ghastly crimes, "'always associated in my mind with the cry of a nighthawk. "'The divine afflatus should never be neglected.' "'announced Nayland Smith didactically. "'Wild, though its promptings may seem. "'Chapter 20. The Note on the Door "'I saw little of Nayland Smith for the remainder of that day. "'Presumably he was following those promptings to which he had referred, "'though I was unable to conjecture whither they were leading him. "'Then, towards dusk, he arrived in a perfect whirl, figuratively sweeping me off my feet. "'Get your coat on, Petrie,' he cried. "'You forget that we have a most urgent appointment.' Beyond doubt I had forgotten that we had any appointment whatever that evening, and some surprise must have shown upon my face, for— "'Really, you are becoming very forgetful,' my friend continued. "'You know we can no longer trust the phone. I have to leave certain instructions for Weymouth at the rendezvous.' There was a hidden significance in his manner, and my memory harking back to an adventure which we had shared in the past, I suddenly glimpsed the depths of my own stupidity. He suspected the presence of an eavesdropper. Yes, incredible though it may appear, we were spied upon in the new Louvre. Agents of the Sea Fan of Dr. Fu Manchu were actually within the walls of the great hotel. We hurried out into the corridor and descended by the lift to the lobby. Monsieur Samarkan, long famous as maitre d'hôtel at one of Cairo's fashionable cans, and now principal of the new Louvre, greeted us with true Greek courtesy. He trusted that we should be present at some charitable function or other to be held at the hotel on the following evening. "'If possible, Monsieur Samarkan, if possible,' said Smith. "'We have many demands upon our time.' Then abruptly to me, "'Come, Petri, we will walk as far as Charing Cross and take a cab from the rank there.' "'The whole porter can call you a cab,' said Monsieur Samarkan, solicitous for the comfort of his guests. "'Thanks,' snapped Smith. "'We prefer to walk a little way.' Passing along the strand, he took my arm, and speaking close to my ear, "'That place is alive with spies, Petri,' he said. "'Or if there are only a few of them, they are remarkably efficient.' Not another word could I get from him, although I was eager enough to talk— since one dearer to me than all else in the world was in the hands of the damnable organization we knew as the Sea Fan, until, arriving at Charing Cross, he walked out to the cab rank and, "'Jump in!' he snapped. He opened the door of the first cab on the rank. "'Drive to J Street, Kennington,' he directed the man. In something of a mental stupor, I entered and found myself seated beside Smith. The cab made off towards Trafalgar Square, then swung around into Whitehall. "'Look behind!' cried Smith, intense excitement expressed in his voice. "'Look behind!' I turned and peered through the little square window. The cab which had stood second upon the rank was closely following us. "'We are tracked,' snapped my companion. "'If further evidence were necessary of the fact that our every movement is watched, here it is!' I turned to him, momentarily at a loss for words. Then, was this the object of our journey, I said? 
Your reference to a rendezvous was presumably addressed to a hypothetical spy? Partly, he replied. I have a plan, as you will see in a moment. I looked again from the window in the rear of the cab. We were now passing between the House of Lords and the back of Westminster Abbey, and fifty yards behind us the pursuing cab was crossing from Whitehall. A great excitement grew up within me, and a great curiosity respecting the identity of our pursuer. "'What is the place for which we are bound, Smith?' I said rapidly. "'It is a house which I have chanced to notice a few days ago, and I marked it as useful for such a purpose as our present one. You will see what I mean when we arrive.' On we went, following the course of the river, then turned over Vauxhall Bridge, and on down Vauxhall Bridge Road, into a very dreary neighbourhood, where gasometers formed the notable feature of the landscape. "'That's the oval just beyond,' said Smith suddenly, "'and here we are.' In a narrow cul-de-sac, which apparently communicated with the boundary of the famous cricket ground, the cabman pulled up. Smith jumped out and paid the fare. "'Pull back to that court with the iron posts,' he directed the man, "'and wait there for me.' Then, come on, Petrie, he snapped. Side by side we entered the wooden gate of a small, detached house, or more properly cottage, and passed up the tiled path towards a sort of side entrance, which apparently gave access to the tiny garden. At this moment I became aware of two things. The first, that the house was an empty one, and the second, that someone, someone who had quitted the second cab, which I had heard pull up at no great distance behind us, was approaching stealthily along the dark and uninviting street, walking upon the opposite pavement and taking advantage of the shadow of a high wooden fence which skirted it for some distance. Smith pushed the gate open, and I found myself in a narrow passageway in almost complete darkness. But my friend walked confidently forward, turned the angle of the building, and entered the miniature wilderness which once had been a garden. "'In here, Petrie!' he whispered. He seized me by the arm, pushed open a door, and thrust me forward down two stone steps into absolute darkness. Walk straight ahead, he directed, still in the same intense whisper, and you will find a locked door having a broken panel. Watch through the opening for anyone who may enter the room beyond, but see that your presence is not detected. Whatever I say or do, don't stir— "'until I actually rejoin you.' "'He stepped back across the floor and was gone. "'One glimpse I had of him, "'silhouetted against the faint light of the open door. "'Then the door was gently closed, "'and I was left alone in the empty house. "'Smith's methods frequently surprised me, "'but always in the past I had found "'that they were dictated by sound reasons. "'I had no doubt that an emergency unknown to me "'dictated his present course.' but it was with my mind in a wildly confused condition that I groped for and found the door with the broken panel, and that I stood there in the complete darkness of the deserted house, listening. I can well appreciate how the blind develop an unusually keen sense of hearing, for there, in the blackness, which at first was entirely unrelieved by any speck of light, I became aware of the fact, by dint of tense listening, that Smith was retiring by means of some gateway at the upper end of the little garden, and I became aware of the fact that a lane or court with which this gateway communicated gave access to the main road. 
faintly. As I heard our discharged cab backing out from the cul-de-sac, then, from some nearer place, came Smith's voice speaking loudly. "'Come along, Petrie,' he cried. "'There is no occasion for us to wait. Weymouth will see the note pinned on the door.' I started. I was about to stumble back across the room, when, as my mind began to work more clearly, I realised that the words had been spoken as a ruse, a favourite device of Nayland Smith's. Rigidly I stood there, and continued to listen. "'All right, cabman,' came more distantly now. "'Back to the new Louvre. Jump in, Petrie!' The cab went rattling away, as a faint light became perceptible in the room beyond the broken panel. Hitherto I had been able to detect the presence of this panel only by my sense of touch, and by means of a faint draught which blew through it. Now it suddenly became clearly perceptible.' I found myself looking into what was evidently the principal room of the house, a dreary apartment with tatters of paper hanging from the walls and litter of all sorts lying about upon the floor and in the rusty fireplace. Someone had partly raised the front window and opened the shutters. A patch of moonlight shone down upon the floor immediately below my hiding-place, and furthermore enabled me vaguely to discern the disorder of the room— a bulky figure showed silhouetted against the dirty panes. It was that of a man who, leaning upon the window-sill, was peering intently in. Silently he had approached, and silently had raised the sash and opened the shutters. For thirty seconds or more he stood so, moving his head from right to left, and I watched him through the broken panel, almost holding my breath with surprise. Then— Fully raising the window, the man stepped into the room, and first reclosing the shutters, suddenly flashed a light of an electric lamp all about the place. I was unable to discern him more clearly, this mysterious spy who had tracked us from the moment that we had left the hotel. He was a man of portly build, wearing a heavy fur-lined overcoat and having a soft felt hat, the brim turned down, so as to shade the upper part of his face. Moreover, he wore his fur collar turned up, which served further to disguise him, since it concealed the greater part of his chin. But the eyes which now were searching every corner of the room, the alert, dark eyes, were strangely familiar. The black moustache, the clear-cut aquiline nose, confirmed the impression. Our follower was Monsieur Samarkand. "'manager of the new Louvre.' "'I suppressed a gasp of astonishment. "'Small wonder that our plans had leaked out. "'This was a momentous discovery indeed. "'As I watched the portly Greek, "'who was not only one of the most celebrated maîtres d'hôtel in Europe, "'but also a creature of Dr. Fu Manchu, "'he cast the light of his electric lamp upon a note "'attached by means of a drawing-pin "'to the inside of the room door. "'I immediately divined, that my friend must have pinned the note in its place earlier in the day. Even at that distance I recognised Smith's neat, illegible writing. Samarkand quickly scanned the message scribbled upon the white page. Then, exhibiting an agility uncommon in a man of his bulk, he threw open the shutters again, having first replaced his lamp in his pocket, climbed out into the little front garden, reclosed the window, and disappeared. A moment I stood, 
lost to my surroundings, plunged in a sea of wonderment concerning the damnable organization, which, its tentacles extending I knew not whither, since new and unexpected limbs were ever coming to light, sought no less a goal than yellow dominion of the world. I reflected how one man, Nayland Smith alone, stood between this powerful group and the realization of their project, when I was aroused by a hand grasping my arm in the darkness. I uttered a short cry, of which I was instantly ashamed, for Nayland Smith's voice came. I startled you, eh, Petrie? Smith, I said, how long have you been standing there? I only returned in time to see our Fenimore Cooper friend retreating through the window, he replied. But no doubt you had a good look at him. I had, I answered eagerly. It was Samarkan. I thought so. I have suspected as much for a long time. Was this the object of our visit here? It was one of the objects, admitted Nayland Smith evasively. From some place not far distant came the sound of a restarted engine. The other, he added, was this, to enable Monsieur Samarkan to read the note which I had pinned upon the door. Chapter 21 The Second Message "'Here you are, Petrie,' said Nayland Smith, and he tossed across the table the folded copy of a morning paper. "'This may assist you in your study of the first Zygazig message.' I set down my cup and turned my attention to the personal column on the front page of the journal. A paragraph appeared therein, conceived as follows. Zagazig, and a similar pattern of the same word, repeated over and over with different punctuation. I stared across at my friend in extreme bewilderment. But Smith, I cried, these messages are utterly meaningless. Not at all, he rapped back. Scotland Yard thought they were meaningless at first, and I must admit that they suggested nothing to me for a long time. But the dead decoit was the clue to the first, Petrie, and the note pinned upon the door of the house near the oval is the clue to the second. Stupidly, I continued to stare at him until he broke into a grim smile. Surely you understand, he said. You remember where the dead Berman was found? Perfectly. You know the street along which ordinarily one would approach the wharf? Three Colt Street? Three Colt Street, exactly. Well, on the night that the Berman met his end, I had an appointment in Three Colt Street with Weymouth. The appointment was made by phone from the new Louvre. My cab broke down, and I never arrived. I discovered later that Weymouth had received a telegram purporting to come from me, putting off the engagement. I am aware of all this. Nayland Smith burst into a loud laugh. But you are still fogged, he cried. Then I'm hanged if I'll pilot you any farther. You have all the facts before you. There lies the first Zagazig message. Here is the second. And you know the context of the note pinned upon the door? It read, if you remember, Remove patrol from Joy Shop neighborhood. Have a theory. Wish to visit place alone on Monday night. After one o'clock. Smith, I said dully, I have a heavy stake upon this murderous game. His manner changed instantly. The tanned face grew grim and hard, but the steely eyes softened strangely. He bent over me, clapping his hands upon my shoulders. I know it, old man, 
he replied, and because it may serve to keep your mind busy during hours when otherwise it would be engaged with profitless sorrows, I invite you to puzzle out this business for yourself. You have nothing else to do until late tonight, and you can work undisturbed here at any rate. His words referred to the fact that, without surrendering our suite at the new Louvre Hotel, we had gone upon a visit of indefinite duration to a mythical friend, and now were quartered in furnished chambers adjoining Fleet Street. We had remained at the new Louvre long enough to secure confirmation of our belief that a creature of Fu Manchu spied upon us there, and now we only waited the termination of the night's affair to take such steps as Smith might consider politic in regard to the sardonic Greek who presided over London's newest and most palatial hotel. Smith setting out for New Scotland Yard, in order to make final arrangements in connection with the business of the night, I began closely to study the mysterious Zagazig messages, determined not to be beaten, and remembering the words of Edgar Allan Poe, the strange genius to whom we are indebted for the first workable system of deciphering cryptograms. It may well be doubted whether human ingenuity can construct an enigma of the kind which human ingenuity may not, by proper application, resolve. The first conclusion to which I was born was this, that the letters comprising the word Zagazig were designed merely to confuse the reader, and might be neglected, since, occurring as they did in regular sequence, they could possess no significance. I became quite excited upon making the discovery that the punctuation marks varied in almost every case. I immediately assumed that these constituted the cipher, and seeking for my key letter, E, that which most frequently occurs in the English language, I found the sign of a full stop to appear more frequently than any other in the first message, namely ten times, although it only occurred thrice in the second. Nevertheless, I was hopeful, until I discovered that in two cases it appeared three times in succession. There is no word in English, nor, so far as I am aware, in any language where this occurs, either in regard to E or any other letter. That unfortunate discovery seemed so wholly to destroy the very theory upon which I relied, that I almost abandoned my investigation there and then. Indeed, I doubt if I ever should have proceeded, were it not that by a piece of pure guesswork I blundered on to a clue. I observed that certain letters, at irregularly occurring intervals, were set in capital, and I divided up the message into corresponding sections, in the hope that the capitals might indicate the commencements of words. This accomplished, I set out upon a series of guesses, basing these upon Smith's assurance that the death of the decoit afforded a clue to the first message and the note which he, Smith, had pinned upon the door a clue to the second. Such being my system, if I can honour my random attempts with the title, I take little credit to myself for the fortunate result. In short, I determined, although E twice occurred where R should have been, that the first message, from the thirteenth letter onwards to the twenty-seventh, read, Three Colt Street. Endeavouring now to eliminate the E where R should appear, I made another discovery. The presence of a letter in italics altered the value of the sign which followed it. 
From that point onward the task became child's play, and I should merely render this account tedious if I entered into further details. Both messages commenced with the name Smith, as I early perceived, and half an hour of close study gave me the complete sentences thus. 1. Smith, passing 3 Colt Street, 12.30, Wednesday. 2. Smith going joy shop after 1, Monday. The word Zagazig was completed always, and did not necessarily terminate with the last letter occurring in the cryptographic message. A subsequent inspection of this curious code had enabled Nayland Smith, by a process of simple deduction, to compile the entire alphabet employed by Dr. Fu Manchu's agent, Samarkand, in communicating with his awful superior. With a little patience, any one of my readers may achieve the same result, and I should be pleased to hear from those who succeed. This, then, was the outcome of my labours, and although it enlightened me to some extent, I realised that I still had much to learn. The dacoit apparently had met his death at the very hour when Nayland Smith should have been passing along Three Colt Street, a thoroughfare with an unsavoury reputation. Who had killed him? Tonight, Samar Khan advised the Chinese doctor, Smith would again be in the same dangerous neighbourhood. A strange thrill of excitement swept through me. I glanced at my watch. Yes, it was time for me to repair, secretly, to my post. For I, too, had business on the borders of Chinatown tonight. Chapter 22 The Secret of the Wharf I sat in the evil-smelling little room with its low, blackened ceiling— and strove to avoid making the slightest noise. But the crazy boards creaked beneath me with every movement. The moon hung low, in an almost cloudless sky. For following the spell of damp and foggy weather, a fall in temperature had taken place, and there was a frosty snap in the air tonight. Through the open window the moonlight poured in, and spilled its pure luminance upon the filthy floor but I kept religiously within the shadows, so posted, however, that I could command an uninterrupted view of the street from the point where it crossed the creek to that where it terminated at the gates of the deserted wharf. Above and below me, the crazy building formerly known as the Joy Shop, and once the nightly resort of the Asiatic riffraff from the docks, was silent, save for the squealing and scuffling of the rats. The melancholy lapping of the water frequently reached my ears, and a more or less continuous din from the wharves and workshops upon the further bank of the Thames, but in the narrow, dingy streets immediately surrounding the house, quietude reigned, and no solitary footstep disturbed it. Once, looking down in the direction of the bridge, I gave a great start, for a black patch of shadow moved swiftly across the path and merged into the other shadows, bordering a high wall. My heart leapt momentarily. Then, in another instant, the explanation of the mystery became apparent, in the presence of a gaunt and prowling cat. Bestowing a suspicious glance upward in my direction, the animal slunk away toward the path bordering the cutting. By a devious route amid ghostly gasometers, I had crept to my post in the early dusk, before the moon was risen, and already— 
I was heartily weary of my passive part in the affair of the night. I had never before appreciated the multitudinous sounds, all of them weird and many of them horrible, which are within the compass of those great black rats who find their way to England with cargoes from Russia and elsewhere. From the rafters above my head, from the wall recesses about me, from the floor beneath my feet, proceeded a continuous and nerve-shattering concert, an unholy symphony which seemingly accompanied the eternal dance of the rats. Sometimes a faint splash from below would tell of one of the revellers taking the water, but save for the more distant throbbing of riverside industry, and rarer note of shipping, the mad discords of the rat Saturnalia alone claimed the ear. The hour was nigh now, when matters should begin to develop. I followed the chimes from the clock of some church nearby, I have never learnt its name, and was conscious of a thrill of excitement when they warned me that the hour was actually arrived. A strange figure appeared noiselessly, from I knew not where, and stood fully within view upon the bridge crossing the cutting, peering to right and left, in an attitude of listening. It was the figure of a bedraggled old woman, grey-haired, and carrying a large bundle tied up in what appeared to be a red shawl. Of her face I could see little, since it was shaded by the brim of her black bonnet, but she rested her bundle upon the low wall of the bridge, and to my intense surprise sat down upon it. She evidently intended to remain there. I drew back further into the darkness, for the presence of this singular old woman at such a place, and at that hour, could not well be accidental. I was convinced that the first actor in the drama had already taken the stage. Whether I was mistaken or not must shortly appear. Crisp footsteps sounded upon the roadway, distantly and from my left. Nearer they approached, and nearer. I saw the old woman, in the shadow of the wall, glance once rapidly in the direction of the approaching pedestrian. For some occult reason the chorus of the rats was stilled. Only that firm and regular tread broke the intimate silence of the dreary spot. Now the pedestrian came within my range of sight. It was Nayland Smith. He wore a long tweed overcoat with which I was familiar, and a soft felt hat, the brim pulled down all around, in a fashion characteristic of him, and probably acquired during the years spent beneath the merciless sun of Burma. He carried a heavy walking-cane, which I knew to be a formidable weapon that he could wield to good effect. But despite the stillness about me, a stillness which had reigned uninterruptedly, save for the dance macabre of the rats, since the coming of dusk some voice within, ignoring these physical evidences of solitude, spoke urgently of lurking assassins, of murderous Easterns armed with those curved knives which sometimes flash before my eyes in dreams, of a deathly menace which hid in the shadows about me, in the many shadows, cloaking the holes and corners of the ramshackle building, draping arches, crannies and portals to which the moonlight could not penetrate. He was abreast of the joy-shop now, and in sight of the ominous old witch huddled upon the bridge. He pulled up suddenly, and stood looking at her. Coincident with his doing so, she began to moan, and sway her body to right and left as if in pain. Then, "'Kind gentleman,' she whined in a sing-song voice, 
Thank God you came this way to help a poor old woman. What is the matter? said Smith tersely, approaching her. I clenched my fists. I could have cried out. I was indeed hard put to it to refrain from crying out, from warning him. But his injunctions had been explicit, and I restrained myself by a great effort, preserving silence and crouching there at the window. But with every muscle tensed, and a desire for action strong upon me. I tripped up on a rough stone, sir, whined the old creature, and here I've been sitting, waiting for a policeman or someone to help me, for more than an hour I have. Smith stood looking down at her, his arms behind him, and in one gloved hand swinging the cane. Where do you live then? he asked. Not a hundred steps from here, kind gentleman, she replied in a monotonous voice. But I can't move my left foot. It's only just through the gates yonder. What? snapped Smith. On the wharf? They let me have a room in the old building until it's let, she explained. Be helping a poor old woman, and God bless you. Come along, then. Stooping, Smith placed his arm around her shoulders, and assisted her to her feet. She groaned, as if in great pain, but gripped her red bundle, and leaning heavily upon the supporting arm, hobbled off across the bridge in the direction of the wharf gates at the end of the lane. Now at last a little action became possible, and having seen my friend push open one of the gates and assist the old woman to enter, I crept rapidly across the crazy floor, found the doorway, and with little noise, for I wore rubber-soled shoes, stole down the steps into what had formerly been the reception-room of the joy-shop, the malodorous sanctum of the old Chinaman, John Kai. Utter darkness prevailed there, but momentarily flicking the light of a pocket-lamp upon the floor before me, I discovered the further steps that were to be negotiated, and I descended into the square yard, which gave access to the path skirting the creek. The moonlight drew a sharp line of shadow along the wall of the house above me, but the yard itself was a well of darkness. I stumbled under the rotting brick archway, and stepped gingerly upon the muddy path that I must follow. One hand pressed to the damp wall, I worked my way cautiously along, for a false step had precipitated me into the foul water of the creek. In this fashion, and still enveloped by dense shadows, I reached the angle of the building. Then, at risk of being perceived, for the wharf and the river both were bathed in moonlight, I peered along to the left. Out, onto the paved pathway communicating with the wharf, came Smith, shepherding his tottering charge. I was too far away to hear any conversation that might take place between the two, but unless Smith gave the prearranged signal, I must approach no closer. Thus, as one sees a drama upon the screen, I saw what now occurred occurred with dramatic, lightning swiftness. Releasing Smith's arm, the old woman suddenly stepped back, at the instant that another figure, a repellent figure which approached, stooping, apish, with a sort of loping gait, crossed from some spot invisible to me, and sprang like a wild animal upon Smith's back. It was a Chinaman, wearing a short, loose garment of the smock pattern, and having his head bare, so that I could see his pigtail coiled upon his yellow crown, that he carried a cord, I perceived in the instant of his spring, and that he had whipped it about Smith's throat with unerring dexterity, 
was evidenced by the one short, strangled cry that came from my friend's lips. Then Smith was down, prone upon the crazy planking, with the ape-like figure of the Chinaman perched between his shoulders, bending forward, the wicked yellow fingers at work, tightening, tightening, tightening the strangling cord. Uttering a loud cry of horror, I went racing along the gangway, which projected actually over the moving Thames waters, and gained the wharf, but swift as I had been, another had been swifter. A tall figure, despite the brilliant moon, I doubted the evidence of my sight. Wearing a tweed overcoat and a soft felt hat, with the brim turned down, sprang up from nowhere, as it seemed, swooped upon the horrible figure squatting, Simeon-esque, between Smith's shoulder-blades, and grasped him by the neck. I pulled up shortly, one foot set upon the wharf. The newcomer was the double of Nayland Smith. Seemingly exerting no effort whatever, he lifted the strangler in that remorseless grasp, so that the Chinaman's hands, after one quick convulsive upward movement, hung limply beside him like the paws of a rat in the grip of a terrier. "'You damned murderous swine!' I heard in a repressed, savage undertone. "'The knife failed, so now the cord has an innings. "'Go after your pal!' Releasing one hand from the neck of the limp figure, the speaker grasped the Chinaman by his loose, smock-like garment, swung him back once, a mighty swing, and hurled him far out into the river as one might hurl a sack of rubbish. Chapter 23 The Arrest of Samarkand As the high gods willed it, explained Nayland Smith, tenderly massaging his throat, Mr. Forsyth, having just left the docks, chanced to pass along Three Colt Street on Wednesday night at exactly the hour that I was expected. The resemblance between us is rather marked, and the coincidence of dress completed the illusion. That devilish Eurasian woman, Zami, who has escaped us again, of course you recognized her, made a very natural mistake. Mr. Forsyth, however, made no mistake. I glanced at the chief officer of the Andaman, who sat in an armchair in our new chambers, contentedly smoking a black cheroot. "'Heaven has blessed me with a pair of useful hands,' said the seaman, grimly, extending his horny palms. "'I've an old score against those yellow swine. Poor George and I were twins.' He referred to his brother, who had been foully done to death by one of the creatures of Dr. Fu Manchu. "'It beats me how Mr. Smith got on the track,' he added. "'Pure inspiration,' murmured Nayland Smith glancing aside from the siphon wherewith he now was busy. The divine afflatus, and the same whereby Petri solved the zigzag cryptogram. But, concluded Forsyth, I am indebted to you for an opportunity of meeting the Chinese strangler, and sending him to join the Burmese knife expert. Such, then, were the episodes that led to the arrest of Monsieur Samarkand, and my duty as narrator of these strange matters now bears me on to the morning when Nayland Smith was hastily summoned to the prison into which the villainous Greek had been cast. We were shown immediately into the governor's room, and were invited by that much-disturbed official to be seated. The news which he had to impart was sufficiently startling. Samarkand was dead. "'I have Warder Morrison's statement here,' said Colonel Warrington. 
if you will be good enough to read it. Nayland Smith rose abruptly and began to pace up and down the little office. Through the open window I had a glimpse of a stooping figure in convict garb, engaged in limbing the flower-beds of the prison governor's garden. "'I shall like to see this warder Morrison personally,' snapped my friend. "'Very good,' replied the governor, pressing a bell-push placed close beside his table. A man entered, to stand rigidly at attention just within the doorway. "'Send Morrison here,' ordered Colonel Warrington. The man saluted and withdrew. As the door was reclosed, the colonel sat, drumming his fingers upon the table. Nayland Smith walked restlessly about, tugging at the lobe of his ear, and I absently watched the convict gardener pursuing his toils. Shortly sounded a rap at the door, and— "'Come in!' cried Colonel Warrington. A man wearing warder's uniform appeared, saluted the governor, and stood glancing uneasily from the colonel to Smith. The latter now had ceased his perambulations, and one elbow resting upon the mantelpiece was staring at Morrison, his penetrating grey eyes as hard as steel. Colonel Warrington twisted his chair around, fixing his monocle more closely in its place. He had the wiry white moustache and fiery red face of the old-style Anglo-Indian officer. Morrison, he said, Mr. Commissioner Nayland Smith has some questions to put to you. The man's uneasiness, palpably, was growing by leaps and bounds. He was a tall and intelligent-looking fellow of military build, though spare for his height and of an unhealthy complexion. His eyes were curiously dull, and their pupils interested me, professionally, from the very moment of his entrance. "'You were in charge of the prisoner Samarkand,' began Smith harshly. "'Yes, sir,' Morrison replied. "'Were you the first to learn of his death?' I was, sir. I looked through the grill in the door and saw him lying on the floor of the cell. What time was it? A half past four a.m. What did you do? I went into the cell and then sent for the head warder. You realized at once that Samarkand was dead? At once, yes. Were you surprised? Nayland Smith subtly changed the tone of his voice in asking the last question, and it was evident that the veiled significance of the words was not lost upon Morrison. "'Well, sir,' he began, and cleared his throat nervously. "'Yes or no?' snapped Smith. Morrison still hesitated, and I saw his underlip twitch. Nayland Smith, taking two long strides, stood immediately in front of him, glaring grimly into his face. "'This is your chance,' he said emphatically. "'I shall not give you another.' "'You had met Samarkand before?' Morrison hung his head for a moment, clenching and unclenching his fists. Then he looked up swiftly, and the light of a new resolution was in his eyes. "'I'll take the chance, sir,' he said, speaking with some emotion. "'And I hope, sir,' turning momentarily to Colonel Warrington, "'that you'll be as lenient as you can, for I didn't know there was any harm in what I did.' "'Don't expect any leniency from me,' cried the colonel. If there has been a breach of discipline, there will be punishment. Rely upon it. I admit the breach of discipline, pursued the man doggedly. But I want to say here and now that I've no more idea than anybody else how the— Smith snapped his fingers irritably. The facts! The facts! he demanded. What you don't know cannot help us. 
"'Well, sir,' said Morrison, clearing his throat again. "'When the prisoner Samarkan was admitted, "'and I put him safely into his cell, "'he told me that he suffered from heart trouble, "'that he'd had an attack when he was arrested, "'and that he thought he was threatened with another which might kill him.' "'One moment,' interrupted Smith. "'Is this confirmed by the police officer who made the arrest?' "'It is, sir,' replied Colonel Warrington, "'swinging his chair around and consulting some papers upon his table. "'The prisoner was overcome by faintness "'when the officer showed him the warrant "'and asked him to be given some cognac from the decanter "'which stood in his room. "'This was administered, and he then entered the cab "'which the officer had waiting. "'He was taken to Bow Street, remanded,' "'and brought here in accordance with someone's instructions. "'My instructions,' said Smith. "'Go on, Morrison.' "'He told me,' continued Morrison more steadily, "'that he suffered from something that sounded to me like apoplexy. "'Catalepsy, I suggested, for I was beginning to see the light. "'That's it, sir. "'He said he was afraid of being buried alive. "'He asked me as a favour, if he should die in prison, "'to go to a friend of his,' and get a syringe with which to inject some stuff that would do away with all chance of his coming to life again after burial. "'You had no right to talk to the prisoner!' roared Colonel Warrington. "'I know that, sir, but you'll admit that the circumstances were peculiar. Anyway, he died in the night, sure enough, and from heart failure, according to the doctor. I managed to get a couple of hours' leave in the evening, and I went and fetched the syringe— "'and a little tube of yellow stuff.' "'Do you understand, Petrie?' cried Nayland Smith, "'his eyes blazing with excitement. "'Do you understand?' "'Perfectly. "'It's more than I do, sir,' continued Morrison. "'But as I was explaining, "'I brought the little syringe back with me, "'and I filled it from the tube. "'The body was lying in the mortuary, which you've seen, "'and the door not being locked, "'it was easy for me to slip in there for a moment.' I didn't fancy the job, but it was soon done. I threw the syringe and the tube over the wall into the lane outside, as I'd been told to do. "'What part of the wall?' asked Smith. "'Behind the mortuary.' "'That's where they were waiting!' I cried excitedly. "'The building used as a mortuary is quite isolated, and it would not be a difficult matter for someone hiding in the lane outside to throw one of those ladders of silk and bamboo across the top of the wall.' "'But, my good sir,' "'interrupted the governor, irascibly. "'Whilst I admit the possibility to which you allude, "'I do not admit that a dead man, and a heavy one at that, "'can be carried up a ladder of silk and bamboo. "'Yet on the evidence of my own eyes, "'the body of the prisoner, Samarkan, "'was removed from the mortuary last night.' "'Smith signalled to me to pursue the subject no further, "'and indeed I realised that it would have been no easy matter "'to render the amazing truth evident,' "'to a man of the colonel's type of mind. "'But to me the facts of the case were now clear enough. "'That Fu Manchu possessed a preparation for producing artificial catalepsy, "'of a sort indistinguishable from death, I was well aware. "'A dose of this unknown drug had doubtless been contained in the cognac, "'if indeed the decanter had held cognac, "'that the prisoner had drunk at the time of his arrest. "'The yellow stuff spoken of by Morrison— I recognized as the antidote, another secret of the brilliant Chinese doctor, a portion of which I had once, some years before, actually had in my possession. The dead man 
had not been carried up the ladder, he had climbed up. Now, Morrison, snapped Nayland Smith, you have acted wisely thus far. Make a clean breast of it. How much were you paid for the job? Twenty pounds, sir, answered the man promptly. And I'd have done it for less, because I could see no harm in it, the prisoner being dead, and this his last request. And who paid you? Now we were come to the nub of the matter, as the change in the man's face revealed. He hesitated momentarily, and Colonel Warrington brought his fist down on the table with a bang. Morrison made a sort of gesture of resignation at that, and— "'When I was in the army, sir, stationed at Cairo,' he said slowly, "'I regret to confess that I formed a drug habit.' "'Opium?' snapped Smith. "'No, sir, hashish.' "'Good God, go on.' "'There's a place in Soho, just off Frith Street, "'where hashish is supplied, and I go there sometimes. "'Mr. Samarkan used to come and bring people with him, "'from the New Louvre Hotel, I believe. And "'That's where I met him.' "'The exact address?' demanded Smith. "'Café de l'Egypte, but the hashish is only sold upstairs.' "'and no one is allowed up that isn't known personally to Ismail.' "'Who is this Ismail?' "'The proprietor of the café. "'He's a Greek Jew of Salonica. "'An old woman used to attend to the customers upstairs, "'but during the last few months a young one has sometimes taken her place.' "'What is she like?' I asked eagerly. "'She has very fine eyes, and that's all I can tell you, sir, "'because she wears a yashmak. "'Last night there were two women there, both veiled, though.' Two women? Hope and fear entered my heart. That Karamana was again in the power of the Chinese doctor I knew to my sorrow. Could it be that the Café de l'Egypte was the place of her captivity? This is B.J. Harrison. I hope you have enjoyed this unabridged production of The Hand of Fu Manchu, Part 5 of 7, by Sax Romer. If you've enjoyed this book, please become a supporting member of the Classic Tales at classictalesaudiobooks.com. You'll find many ways of supporting us, starting at only $5 each. Each donation comes with a monthly thank you code for expanding your classic audiobook library. Please become a member today. Thank you for joining me today and allowing classic literature to awaken your better self. Please join me every week, and we'll rediscover the greatest stories ever put to paper. Music